Hello, subscribers to the Double X Gabfest. I'm June Thomas. I am here today because I want to introduce a very special treat that we are putting in our feed and that you will hear in just a few minutes after a little bit of blabbing between me and a very special guest. We today are featuring one of the episodes of a podcast called Upon Further Review, uh, which you probably know already because it's also the name of the book written by Mr. Mike Pesca of The Gist with Mike Pesca. And I actually have Mr. Mike Pesca here with me today to talk about what we're going to hear. Hello, Mike Pesca. June, it is very gratifying not only to be here in your feed, but to hear you describe the tome that I committed to paper with hardcovers as a, what was that word used? A book. A book. Yes, 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 yes. It's a little talk, not about the book, (laughs) but about the podcast. About the podcast. (laughs) So you have done this podcast that is based on the book, and the book is a collection of what-ifs, right? Sporting Mm -hmm. what-ifs. Sure, sure. What if Richard Nixon were good at football? What if uh, the Phoenix Suns had answered Jesse Eisenberg's fan letters? Just to name episodes one and two of the podcast. Now, there are other what-ifs in the book, like what if Muhammad Ali had gotten his draft deferment? What if Billie Jean King had lost to Bobby Riggs. I'll give you the spoiler there. She would have come back to beat him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she, yeah, yeah. she would not. Like if she pulls the hamstring in that match, she's not She's yeah. not taking that. It's, it's yeah. not over with. But today we're going to hear a very special episode of Upon Further Review. Mm-hmm. Tell us what it's about. This is the journalist Louisa Thomas, who in the book and here on the podcast contemplates the question, what if Brandy Chastain's kick in the 1999 Women's World Cup had not scored the winning goal, had gone awry. So I guess it's about a book, but also about a boot. (laughs) A boot and a boot. All right, finally, people have acknowledged that those two words should indeed rhyme. And Louisa explored what happened to women's football or women's soccer Mm -hmm. in the post the 1999 World Cup, and it's a very interesting exploration of same. Yes, and she has, as you'll hear, the principals who you remember from the World Cup, and she's a wonderful journalist. And also, I make note of this, but I just want to underline that my book has 30 or 31 chapters, if you include the Malcolm Gladwell intro, and it contemplates what-ifs from all angles. But I, I so loved the flavor of this what-if because it's a little bit different. It doesn't perhaps take uh, that bend in the road of history and rewrite everything. It's a combination of great reporting, great imagination, and a great point. I think all credit due to Louisa. So, without further ado, upon further review. Hi, it's Mike Pesca, and this is Upon Further Review. So when I undertook this project, meaning the book and the podcast that the book was based on, I had different ideas for different chapters, different stories to cover, different periods, different sports, and different tones to take. And one thing I definitely wanted to do was cover a huge turning point in sports, not just to take a winning team and turn them into a losing team or to take a loser and turn them into a winner. I wanted to find an inflection point in sports and brace it, straighten it out, to ask, what if that momentous occurrence never occurred for even a moment? I mean, the entire enterprise of what-ifs is to question the inevitability of history. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the 1999 Women's World Cup in soccer. This is what they are playing for, the Women's World Cup trophy. The question everyone has been asking lately, why has America become so enthralled with this Women's World Cup? Louisa Thomas was a young sports reporter then and still remembers the impact of that cup on her world. 
She's since gone on to write a best-selling biography of former First Lady Louisa Adams and is a regular contributor to The New Yorker. So we asked Louisa, Thomas, to revisit the 1999 Women's World Cup final and imagine how things might have turned out differently if a certain penalty kick had bounced the other way. Now, just to be clear, everything that you will hear up until that kick happens is real. Everything. Every bit of archive tape. Every interview. But afterward, well, we'll let Louisa take it from here. It was a sound that had never been heard before. 90,000 fans cheering at a women's sporting event. On television, millions more were watching the final of the 1999 Women's World Cup at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. It was the largest American audience ever to watch a soccer game, men's or women's. I'm Brandi Chastain, former U.S. Women's National Team player and supporter of all young girls and women. Everything about that game was outsized, intense, almost saturated. One very vivid memory that I can see literally in color was the field, so green. And as we walked, when you walk from the tunnel, which is really dark, you go out into this brilliant midday sun, and it was just incredible. Even on television, the game had a kind of technicolor quality. I was in high school then, a big sports fan who liked to read box scores over breakfast. But I'd never seen anything like this. What we're seeing clearly transcends sports. The U.S. women's national team seemed to be playing for more than a world championship. In three short weeks, it has become the hottest story of the summer, exceeding all expectations. It was playing for a place in history, and perhaps for a way to change history. Um, How would I like to be identified? I'm Julie Foudy, former captain of the USA women's soccer team, two-time Olympic gold medalist, fabulous shower singer. There was... a a real recognition, and we were very cognizant of the fact that there was something greater happening beyond just, you know, individual accolades or even um, the group being successful as a whole, was that there was almost a movement in hand of um, the power of a team coming together. But to have a lasting impact, to turn this moment into a movement, they had to win the cup. In the final, the team played China to a scoreless draw through regulation. After 30 minutes of overtime, both teams had still failed to score. The game would be decided by penalty kicks. Well, there is a lot of pressure here, JP. You never want a game to come down to PKs because it's really, there's some skill involved, but it's a lot of luck as well. Both teams would get five kicks each. A pressure-filled face-off where players take turns trying to beat the other team's goalkeeper with a single shot. On the referee's whistle. Quailin with a shot and a goal. China's up. The first two players for both teams scored. Then, on the third kick by China, U.S. goalkeeper Brianna Scurry came away with a save to give the U.S. an edge in the point tally. The shot. Save Scurry! If the U.S. made the rest of their penalty kicks, they would win. Finally, it was up to Brandy Chastain for the deciding fifth kick. Obviously, much of this is mental. Tony DeChico has always told his team this philosophy. You prepare to take one and you prepare to make one. The players were prepared, but what about the American public? Were they ready to embrace women's soccer? Journalists like Stephen Goff, a longtime soccer writer for The Washington Post, knew how much was riding on this World Cup. Out among the masses, 
uh, there were real questions about whether it was going to attract um, a big audience. We essentially were told when we first wanted to host that World Cup that, look, you should do it in smaller stadiums. Julie Foudy again. You should keep it regional, do it on the East Coast, play in, you know, maybe 10,000 seat stadiums. And then you'll know that you're selling out. It will look good on television. You won't have all these empty stadiums. And our reaction from from the first moment was, well, how do you know the stadiums will be empty if we go to big stadiums? What if they're full? <laughs> and what would that look like? So these players played a full 90, most of them, then another 30. So you're looking at 120 minutes in intense heat and pressure. And now the biggest pressure of their lives for most of these women, maybe all, their most important penalty kicks ever. As Brandy Chastain strode to the penalty box, it was as if the whole country was holding its breath. I'm not sure of the word, but it was just such a heavy moment. Look at the faces. And the feeling was, I think, you know, the future of women's soccer depends on the outcome of this game. The stakes couldn't have been higher. That the USA could win the World Cup on this next kick. Before the penalty kicks began, the U.S. coach Tony DiCicco came over to Chastain with an unusual demand. And he said, okay, uh, he may have put a hand on my shoulder. He was always good like that, you know, like a very comforting, calming hand. Uh, and he said, okay, um, you're going to take a penalty kick. And I said, yep. And he goes, okay, uh, you're going to take it with your, your left foot. There was only one problem. Before that day, I'd never taken a penalty kick left-footed in a game. The coaches were concerned that Chastain had become too predictable. And just as he said that, it was like, you know, the Roadrunner cartoon where when it takes off, the dust is behind it, like it's just gone in a second. That was Tony. Like, he said, you're going to take it with your left foot. He was gone. Like, he didn't give me a moment to say, well, wait a minute, hold on. I don't, or why, or, you know, nothing like that. So I think I was tired or, you know, just physically and emotionally so spent at that point that... I didn't spend any time thinking about, well, why did he say that? And what does that mean? And how is that going to go? Chastain will take it. Chastain set down the ball. And as I put the ball down and I looked up, there was the goalkeeper standing in front of me. And kind of like two boxers in the middle of the ring, she literally psyched me out. She totally gave me like a smile and a wink. And I was like, that's the weirdest thing that's ever happened. Then she started her run. And even though I hit the ball well, it hit the crossbar and went out. China made their next kick and then eventually pulled ahead in points. Suddenly, the game was over. The crowd sat stunned in their seats. Yeah, you want to know what it sounded like? Yeah. You ready? Yep. Listen, listen. That's what it sounded like. It's amazing how quiet 90,000 plus people could be. Not to mention all the people watching at home. I can still remember the pit in my stomach at that moment. Deflated, I switched the channel to an Orioles game. It's hard to quantify exactly what was lost in that moment, but the disappointment would reverberate long afterward. Instead of the 1999 World Cup being a shot in the arm for women's soccer, Goff says... It was back to business as usual because um, soccer went back to the business as usual. Um, without a pro league starting up right away, or, or an existing pro league, what are you going to write about? 
The Usual Suspects, major sports played by men. There were some true believers who attempted to carry the momentum forward. Having witnessed the drawing power of women's soccer, a group of investors put together a professional league in 2001. The WUSA launched with great fanfare and lots of money, but attracted relatively small crowds. After only three seasons, it folded. The big issue was the amount of money they spent. It was unsustainable. And when it did fold, it was just so abrupt. Um, it was right before the 03 World Cup. The 2003 Women's World Cup was also held in the U.S. after a SARS outbreak in the planned host country, China. After the disappointment in Pasadena, the crowds were smaller than they had been four years earlier. It looked like women's soccer had missed its chance to break into the mainstream. And I think that there is a, a part of all of us who lived through those 90s and into 2000 that wish that the growth of women's soccer on the professional level um, would have been better. And when I mean better, I mean that the league would have stayed around and that we would be talking about this being the 17th season of the WUSA. After the WUSA, a second women's league launched and then failed. Finally, on the third try, with significant support from the U.S. and Canadian national federations, a pro league took root. It attracted a fiercely passionate fan base, but barely got by. Salaries for non-national team members were almost impossible to live on, and crowds averaged around 5,000 a game. You know, they'll, 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 get, they'll get the coverage they deserve, I, I think, based on um, attendance figures. It's a classic chicken and egg problem, right? Coverage begets attention, which begets coverage. According to a decades-long study by USC, the percentage of airtime devoted to women's sports between 1999 and 2014 actually dropped by 10% on ESPN Sports Center. And there wasn't much women's sports coverage to begin with. Number six, it's the Women's World Cup. Germany, Norway. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. Norway's Marin Mayelda. Bending in the free Goal! kick. Oh, right oh. over the wall. You see? Three, nice. Three nice. young ladies all turned their head. They didn't want to catch one in the grill. They might not have wanted to mess they gave hit. up a goal. Might not want to mess they hit. Far down, hands Impossible. up. Impossible. Let's go back. Overall, the show featured female athletes only 2% of the time. We've always concerned ourselves and the national team and as, as individuals, concerned ourselves with just being the best players that we can be. That's Heather O'Reilly, who joined the U.S. national team in 2004. But yeah, certainly it, it, it does sometimes get frustrating when people tune in like every four years at the World Cup or maybe the Olympics. And sometimes you just want to say like, you know, yeah, we've been doing that. <laughs> There's years in between too. Heather now plays in the UK for Arsenal. We feel proud that we've moved the needle a bit, but that's certainly, I think, uh, an aspect that still has a lot, a lot of room to grow. But might the needle have moved farther if Brandy Chastain had made her penalty kick and the U.S. had won in 1999? You always have to be prepared for things not to go your way. It's not as easy to change mindsets as I thought as a naive 20-something-year-old. All the disrespect. We've been getting all these questions about, you know, why are you guys so popular? All the sexism. Is it just because, you know, attractive? And I was like, um... All of the fallout from the 1999 Women's World Cup is easy to imagine. Because that's exactly what happened when they won. That missed kick from Brandy? Chastain will take it. It hit the crossbar and went out, and we eventually ended up losing the game 2-1. to one. It was actually from a different game. He missed a penalty kick against China in the Algarve Cup, and they lost that game. And remember when she described the silence of the crowd? 
Yeah, you want to know what it sounded like? Yeah. You ready? Yep. Listen, listen. That's what it sounded like. It's amazing how quiet 90,000 plus people could be. That was her memory of what she heard before she took the final penalty kick. Of course, in real life, Brandi Chastain made that penalty kick in the 1999 Women's World Cup. Ripping off her jersey in that now iconic photo. What actually followed was pandemonium. I remember leaping out of my seat at home. Second time the United States has won the Women's World Cup and Brandi Chastain gets the game around the PK. But despite their triumph, all the things that came after, the league failures, the lack of media coverage, the gender pay gap, and the general apathy, well, all that part is true. The sad thing is that I think it's taken far too long for that catalyst actually to have its effect. And I, and we thought actually, and, and I think that has been the most enlightening thing is, is how hard it is to shift mindsets and culture. Things don't change until you have players or a committed group, you know, pushing them to do so. After the win in 1999, some things did change for the better. Credible sports sites no longer rank female players based on their looks. No one in the mainstream press makes sexualized comments and gets away with it anymore. But what little coverage women's sports get is still offered in dutiful tones. It wasn't until 2015 that a team of charismatic, wildly talented, determined soccer players ran away with the Women's World Cup title and became, once again, the biggest story of the summer. These champions deserve all the attention that they've been getting. Uh, after 16 long years, too many heartbreaks, they flew north to put America back on top of the soccer world, and they did it in style. This team taught all America's children that playing like a girl means you're a badass. And... Yet even these badasses were forced to play on AstroTurf instead of natural grass and receive smaller paychecks than the men's national team players. Let's talk about women's soccer players. They're the big stars in the States with all the money and the glory of the men. Well, except for the money part. And this, despite the fact that while the U.S. women were winning the World Cup, the U.S. men failed even to qualify. But the legacy of the 1999 team is more complicated than that. Because for millions of people watching, that World Cup really did make a deep and lasting impact. We were, we were so excited to see NSYNC because NSYNC was performing the national anthem. Remember Heather O'Reilly with Arsenal? She was just 14 years old when the 1999 World Cup opened at MetLife Stadium in New Jersey, outside New York. She went with her club team, the East Brunswick Dynamite. And so we were like blasting NSYNC in the parking lot and passing the ball around. And then the actual game started. NSYNC was quickly forgotten. I just remember it, it seeming like quite normal for me that it was women's football. Like it didn't really matter that it was men's football or women's football. And I think, I don't think I recognized that at that point in time, how important that was for me to kind of see. When the U.S. women's team came through her town on an exhibition tour the following year, Heather was there again, this time with her guy friends. We had, like, bandanas and our faces painted and stuff like that. And, like, these two guys that, you know, played, like, pretty high-level soccer were just as much in awe of the national team that I was. In 2004, Heather became the youngest member of the U.S. Olympic team. She was just 19. Here's Steve Goff. 
And all this started, you know, back in the 90s. And players like Mia Hamm and, and Julie Foudy, Tiffany Milbritt, uh, it's uh, a whole um, string of players with amazing skills. I mean, the, the current U.S. team, Tobin Heath is one of the most technically gifted players you'll see, male or female. Female players weren't the only ones so inspired. I was an aspiring writer interning at the Washington Post sports section that summer. I'd grown up reading the sports pages every morning. That meant, for the most part, I grew up reading about the exploits of men, stories that were also usually written by men. But now, there were women on the front page. As an intern, my job was mostly to sort the mail and answer the phone. But before the quarterfinal game played in D.C., I was assigned to assist the reporter covering the game, one Stephen Goff. I remember that game because the U.S. team was losing. Right. I, I mean, that was the Brandy's own goal. Yeah. Which is how I found myself clutching my notebook in the mix zone after the game, summoning the courage to ask Julie Foudy a question. And that's why I saw the copy of Newsweek in my closet with the picture of Chastain in her black sports bra on the cover. I actually asked Chastain about how she came to take off her jersey in that moment. Do you ever imagine your celebration or... No. Do you ever think about pulling well, off a shirt know, in front of 90,000 people? No. It was just But I will be honest and say that we, yes, um, you know, we train in Florida, so we had a lot of post-practice time where we'd all be in our sports bras doing, you know, extra work, you know, working on free kicks. So it just came naturally. Of course, she never imagined doing it while winning a World Cup. The thought of scoring in a World Cup final, I mean, and then for it to go to the fifth penalty kick, and then that be me and win the game? I mean, come on. You, you, you almost can't write that. The script ended as it should, as the way the public thinks it should, and how different it would have been um, had we not. Julie Foddy would agree that the U.S. women's victory in 1999 was not this magical turning point for women's sports, the way it's sometimes made out to be. But it did change a lot of things. We clearly wouldn't have been on the cover of all those magazines and you don't have the iconic Brandy image of her strength and, you know, biceps and, um, and sports bra. And so it's a very different day for women in history. It helped normalize the idea that female athletes were, well, athletes. It helped people realize that a great game is simply a great game, no matter the gender of the teams. And for me, it helped drive home the fact that women, including women writers, had a place in sports. Louisa Thomas is a writer of many things, including sports. Definitely check out her book, Louisa, The Extraordinary Life of Mrs. Adams. And stay tuned for my post-game interview with her about sports fairy tales that's coming up. Our story was produced by Nina Porzuki and edited by Derek John. We had production assistance from Danielle Hewitt. And I gotta say, to comment on what we just heard... It is to me notable that it's an example of a what if not rewriting history so much as confirming that history has an obstinate way of asserting itself. History is not inevitable or preordained, but it's also useful to note that there are lots of times when you could try to redirect the path of the river, but the river still flows where it wants to.
So it's Mike again. Hi, and I'm with Louisa Thomas. It's quite a booking for us. It's a big get. Hello, Louisa. Hi. So in the piece we just heard, there is a contrast between maybe the popular myth of uh, what the Women's World Cup did and, and how things really shook out, which is to say that there was progress made, but it came in fits and starts. It wasn't clean. It wasn't the case that things were one way and then boom, they were another. Is that usually how progress works? Well, one of the things that... Uh, journalists do especially, I think, um, but historians also do, is you start with an endpoint, right? You know what's going to happen. And then the task is to sort of create a narrative that that brings you from point A to point B. Um, mm-hmm. One of the advantages of having done a lot of history is that you know the real difficulty sometimes isn't explaining how we got to point B. It's where to put point A. I mean, because everything has a arbitrary beginning, um, you know, we can say that the 1999 Women's World Cup was hugely important, and I think we would be absolutely correct in saying that. But to say that it's the turning point, i.e. it's the beginning of a kind of revolution, is, I think, probably somewhat overstated. Um, it's this hugely important moment. But um, one of the reasons it was it was possible was that there was this wave building in the 1990s. Um, so, so sometimes the story, it's not like, is the story true or false? Sometimes the story is, well, what are the choices we are making in telling the story and and what are the what are the faults and what are the strengths um, in choosing yeah. our, our kind of beginning point? Okay, so you cover sports and history. Do you believe, do you have you observed that sports writing or sports reporting is more given to the fairy tale when in fact great things could have happened, but that doesn't mean things were happily ever after. Is that a particular affliction of sports reporting? Well, one of the reasons that people tend to love sports, and I include myself in in people, is that they feel really good sometimes. I mean, that's really important. Sometimes I think that we focus too much on the cynical, you know, especially because I tend to write about things like gender and race and blah, blah, and these kind of heavy issues and, and find a lot of cynicism in the idealism and that people bring to sports because at the end of the day, humans are humans and humans often do kind of nasty things. However, mm-hmm. there can be wonderful stories about real kind of triumphs and real overcoming and real change and real um, joy and I don't think we should ever lose sight of that. And this was a moment that brought a lot of joy to a lot of people and which continues to bring a lot of joy to a lot of people. Whether or not it had this kind of transformative effect, it had a lasting effect in the sense that it did normalize this idea that women could could dominate the news. Um, we have to remember that for the women on that team, when they had been kids, there had been no women's national team. Right. It wasn't that they weren't good. Yeah, it didn't exist. Yeah, you can joke about Brandi Chastain, you know, imagining or not imagining taking that final PK in her backyard. But she really couldn't have imagined that because there was no Women's World Cup when she was a kid. There was no women's national team. And now there is. Is the fairy tale aspect of it, which your piece just uh, exploded a little bit, fun, gently, but definitely exploded, is holding on to the fairy tale aspect of it in any way useful? Is it useful for children? Is it useful for the casually invested layman? How much should we as journalists try to correct that impression? How much should we as citizens be okay with our fellow citizens living with it? Um, I think that 
two somewhat contradictory things can be true. Um, I think this is true of American history writ large. I think we can celebrate the 4th of July while recognizing that the founding fathers were really problematic, misogynistic slaveholders. I mean, I think that we can understand that the stories that we tell about ourselves as a people are incredibly important stories, whether or not they take into account sometimes the real depravities and complexities. This is a much more benign you know, story than a lot of the stories you can tell about um, progress in history. Um, I think it's important to remember that that progress is really hard. And at the same time, I absolutely think it's important to wring whatever positive joy and and real kind of compassion and, um, yeah, just have fun with the stories that we tell. I think the Brandy Chastain moment is one of not only the one of the most iconic, but one of the most like fun moments in sports. I- I'm never going to forget that. And-, and I think that's really important. And I think we should hold on to that. Thank you, Louisa. Thank you so much. Next week on Upon Further Review, it's the Dougie and the Donk Show on Boston Sports Talk Radio. And the Kelly's Roast Beef question of the day is, what if Patriots QB Tom Brady never took over for an injured Drew Bledsoe? The name Brady, you don't uh, you don't think about it, you don't hear it much anymore. But I, you know, I think that was a. a I what, had to what's... Google images him oh, because sure. it was so sure. long ago. If he had had a better arm, yeah. and maybe some charisma, sure, maybe that sure. would have carried and not over. Not for nothing, but Drew Bledsoe is a handsome man. It's hard, Gorgeous. To, hard to hold a camera. Gorgeous. What if the 1999 U.S. women's national soccer team had lost the women's World Cup? Was based on a piece written by Louisa Thomas. You can find that and other great what-ifs in Upon Further Review, the greatest what-ifs in sports history, published by 12, an imprint of Hachette. Upon Further Review, the podcast is hosted by me, Mike Pesca. The executive producer is Derek John. TJ Raphael is a senior producer, and Steve Lichtai is executive producer of the Slate Podcast Network. To make sure you catch every episode, don't forget to subscribe on Apple or Stitcher. Those are two places that people get their podcasts. When you are there, you could go to the review page and leave a review. Tell people how much you liked it. That helps people find the podcast, but also, really, it's for you. It will make you feel good, and that's what we're here for. See you next week on Upon Further Review. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.